0: Charlie told me I needed to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm the guy that does the announcements. <laughs> um, teach chapel class. If you haven't come yet and don't have another class, why don't you come? Uh, serve on the elder board. Um, Cindy's husband. <laughs> Five kids. Thirteen grandkids. I'm still working on all the names. Don't ask me. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please. Job chapter, Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. We're going to read this morning the first 12 verses. Job chapter 9. Stand with me, if you would, please, in, if, if you're able. We're going to read the first 12 verses. Job chapter 9. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, He could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. And when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades? In the chambers of the south, who does great things unfathomable, and wondrous works without number? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what art thou doing? Join with me as we pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, that we can open your word, that we can hear and receive that which you have for us to learn. Lord, may we be a people this morning that are eager and hungry to know Your Word and to be transformed by Your Word. Lord, may we not fall into the trap of simply seeking more knowledge and being better Bible students. Lord, that's a a worthy thing, but it's certainly not sufficient. Lord, we desire for Your Word to reach into the very bone and marrow of our lives, to transform us and to change us into the people that You've called us to be. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that by your word and by your spirit that you would lead us into all truth, that you would reveal to us, Lord, the people that you have called us to be, that you would strengthen us by your mighty hand. We might go forth from this place prepared, willing, able, equipped to glorify your name in all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I'm a million-mile guy. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, it's, it's not a badge of honor. It just means you've been on airplanes too many times, too often. And um, I think that million thing passed a long time ago. I'm on my way to two. And um, when you get that far uh, in air mileage, it's supposed to treat you better. Um, I won't even go there, Okay. I, all I know is that when I finish today, you I'm going to go out and get a quick bite to eat, and I'm going to get on an airplane. So I pay a lot of attention to what uh, goes on in the news with airplanes and uh, uh, the interesting stories. And I think we all remember pretty vividly the Airbus, Airbus uh, splash landing in the Hudson River uh, in the first part of January. Anybody not see that? Um, it was a pretty amazing sight. I think I'll never forget the picture of those passengers standing on the wings of that plane. Some of them up to their ankles and then sort of sunk down a little bit more, and they're up to their waist. But amazingly, nobody was hurt. Not seriously. They all walked away. It was an amazing thing. And, of course, the story of Captain Sully Sullenberger's uh, brilliant landing is one that we uh, will all remember. Uh, in fact, he's a guy that's a national hero. I was in a... In a um, hotel in Washington, D.C. a month or so ago, and uh, I was talking to one of my friends, and he said, oh, I just saw Captain Sullenberger go, uh, rode down the elevator with him. He was there to testify before Congress, and I'm thinking, wow, man, I wish I was on that elevator. I could have met him. Well, you know, it it is an amazing story. The plane was only at uh, 3,000 feet when they hit a flock of birds. Both engines cut out. There, it says, they, someone said there was a big bang, and then one pastor described it this way, it was suddenly as quiet as a library. Now, that is not a sound or lack of sound that you want to hear when you're on an airplane. <laughs> well, Captain Sullenberger uh, could have reacted a lot of ways, couldn't he, when he realized that he had no power. He's 3,000 feet off the ground. Uh, he could have immediately overcorrected and thrown the plane into a catastrophic fall. Uh, but he only had a, a couple moments to make a decision, you know, uh, that would seal the fate of everybody that was on board. Uh, he could try to turn around and, and, and head back to the airport, to Kennedy, but he realized, no, there's no way I can pull that off. Well, I could go to the nearest airport over there in New Jersey. I could, I could go for that. No, no, that's too far. Well, wait a minute. There's the river. There's the Hudson River. I think we have a chance for that. Then you might have heard, you know, he passed 900 feet over the bridge. And then if if you're Google-type people or YouTube people, uh, you've probably seen the landing caught by one of those surveillance cameras. The plane lands and makes sort of a little U-turn, and it's safe. Everybody's safe. What an amazing story. What what an incredible act of courage. What an incredible act of skill. But, you know, the reality is that um, for every one of those amazing escapes, there's a whole lot more that don't make it. There's a whole lot more that where there's just there isn't a happy ending. Bad things happen. So it doesn't matter that we all know that whoever is flying the plane um, or whoever's leading us in this country, when well, it's all said and done, that it is God who holds us in his hand. We know that, don't we? We believe that. And we believe that God works all things according to his divine purposes. And even though sometimes planes crash. and It's nobody's fault. Birds happen. Yet we believe, don't we, that God's in control? We believe that God will care for us. We believe that God has a purpose when things don't work out the way that we would like for them to end. And wow, today, today, these are the toughest, roughest economic times that pretty much all of us, any of us, have lived through in our lifetimes. Now, Cindy's mom and dad are back there. They lived through the Depression. This is nothing. A little bump in the road, but for most of us, this is a big deal. It's a very big deal. The stock market's lost 40% of its value. Well, it's creeping back a little bit. Some of us are watching the stock markets almost every day, cheering it on. Shame on us. (laughs) Well, we know the housing values have plummeted. Many of us are upside down in our mortgages unemployment rates the highest in 25 years many of us have seen our, our 401k's turn into 201k's and 101k's we don't even look at how many of you don't answer this but how many of you haven't even opened up your 401k statement i mean why bother right who needs more bad news well some folks sadly that planned on retiring soon are thinking well it's not going to be for another 10 years or, or maybe never And then on top of all that, the media is telling us we're going to die of swine flu. (laughs) I mean, let's not even read the paper. It would be helpful. Well, through all of this, believers, God's chosen people, those that He cares for so much, don't seem to be faring any better than anybody else. Some of us feel like we're going through more pain than those non-believers. We still face economic hardship. Some of us, economic disaster. We still get sick. We still suffer pretty much as much as everyone else. Well, the book of Job gives us some insight into how God works through crisis. And more important, what our response ought to be when God chooses to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death for his name's sake. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. probably is the oldest book in the Bible. We don't even know who the author is. Maybe it was Moses. Some people think that. But the events probably took place even before the time of Abraham. It's a really, really old book. And this is a story, the whole book, is a story of a man who was the most righteous person on all the earth. Not sort of, kind of. He wasn't in the top ten. He wasn't a finalist in American Idol. No, he was the most righteous man in the whole earth. And it, the book records an amazing interchange between Satan and God. It's the only interchange of this type that we have in the all of Scripture. It, it's, it's incomprehensible in some ways that Satan is standing before God. I'm thinking, why would God allow Satan to stand before him at all? did He kick him out of heaven, but Somehow, God allows Satan to come before his holy throne. And it says in chapter 1, you want to turn there. By the way, uh, Job is the book just before Psalms. So if you open your Bible up to sort of the middle and then turn back just one, one book, you'll find the book of Job. And then the first chapter is where, I, where I'm looking right now. And, it, it, and we'll get there in a minute. But God says to Satan, uh, it's in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? This is Job chapter 1 verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job, for there's no one like him on earth? A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Wow, how would you like to be described like that? The most righteous man on earth, blameless, upright, no one like him. The scripture tells us that Job would rise up early in the morning in this chapter, and he had offered sacrifices on behalf of his children. He loved his children. He cared about them. He prayed for them just in case they had done anything wrong. He'd ask God to forgive them. And his, the children apparently loved one another. It says that uh, on their special day, uh, verse 4, and the sons used to go, uh, go and hold a feast uh, in the house of each one on his day. Uh, that reference here, on his day, probably means on his birthday he bring all his brothers and sisters, there were seven sons and three daughters, bring them all together in the house and then have a big party. They got along. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like to be that kind of dad? Life was good for Job. God himself said Job was good and Job was righteous. And yet God allowed him to suffer as much as any man in the history has ever suffered. It turns out that Job lost his entire family. He lost his seven sons. He lost his three daughters. He lost his personal fortune. He lost his health. He lost the respect of his community. And he even lost the support of his wife, whom God spared. When Job was, was in the worst possible condition, she comes to him and, said, and says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? Now, ladies, that's not an example for you when things are tough for your husband. Well, there was a reason for all this. Satan had come before the Lord, and he'd made a bold accusation. He says to the Lord, Job loves you and is righteous before you because you continually bless him, and you bless his family. you protected him from any discomfort. He's living the good life. Everything is really, really good for Job. And that's the only reason why he loves you. Because things are going so well. Now well, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord Does Job fear God for nothing? No, there's a reason. There's a reason. Verse 10 Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Then Job, then Satan tells the Lord, But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse thee to thy face. So God responds to Satan in verse 12. And he tells him, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And the rest of the chapter describes how how frantic messengers tell Job that all of his livestock, all of his servants were taken away by uh, marauding bands or burned by a fire that fell from heaven. And while still reeling from the news of, of all these losses, even more devastating report comes. His seven sons and three daughters are killed when a great wind came out of nowhere and the house they were in had collapsed where they were celebrating someone's birthday. doesn't get worse than that, does it? It was pretty tough. And how did Job respond? Well, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 21. We're starting with verse 20. It says, And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and... Does it say curse God? No, it says he worshiped. He worshiped God. And he said in verse 21 and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Pretty amazing response, isn't it? We're a people, if we stub our toes, you know, if we have the slightest thing go wrong, we complain and we grumble. God, why did you let this happen to me? I didn't deserve that. Well, you think now, Job could be done. The whole book could be done. That's a great ending. But it goes on for 41 more chapters. And in chapter 2, we find that Satan wasn't satisfied. So he comes before the Lord again. And the Lord asked him the very same question, sort of, I told you so. Look at verse 2, chapter 2. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking about on it, undoubtedly looking for people that he could harm. And verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Remember him? The guy that still loves me? For there's no one out like him on the earth. He's still blameless, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare your life. So the Lord, Satan says, "Skin for skin, all that he has, a man will give for his life." What—that's a old idiom or an expression. "Skin for uh, skin" uh, suggests that a man would trade uh, the life of anybody else, their skin, to save his own skin. We still use that expression today. He did that to save his own skin. And Satan's saying, "Okay, he's lost all his possessions." He's lost all of his children, and yeah, he still trusts you, but take away his health. And that's a whole other story. Do that, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord released him. And what did Satan do immediately? He inflicted Job with boils from the sole of his foot to the very top of his head. Job was so covered with boils, he could hardly move. His skin cracked and oozed. And I won't go on to describe what some of the commentaries say about it. It's pretty ugly, It's pretty horrible. Job uh, was not only in great pain, he looked horrible. His friends could hardly look upon his face. And how did Job respond? Well, look at verse 10. Just after his wife told him to curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow, Job didn't sin in the midst of all this tragedy. But it doesn't mean that this was easy for Job. What we find out in the rest of this book is that it was almost too much for Job to bear. He fell into deep, despair. He didn't curse God, doesn't record that he sinned, but he got depressed. He fell into deep, dark sorrow for himself. And he gets to the point where he says he wishes he had never been born, or at least that he had died at birth. In chapter 3, you don't have to turn to it, it says, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and just expire? I wished I'd never been born. Maybe some of you have been there where life is so tough, you say, I just wish I'd never been born. I wouldn't have to go through this. And then his three friends come, and they're going to comfort him. And they really had good intentions to start with. They spent the first seven days with Job just sitting around with him, and they never said a word. They just were there. Those are good friends. Not going to talk. Not going to give you words. I don't know what words I can say. I'm just going to be here, and I'm going to comfort you by just being with you. It's a good model. And then, that would have been pretty good if they just stopped there, but no, they decided to give their opinion. Spent seven days thinking about it, and they kind of figured it out. And so we find that Eliphaz, the Temanite, the first guy, he gives his, his view of things. And he decides there's no way that the innocent should suffer. Basically, he's saying, Job, you must have committed a pretty big sin. In chapter 4, verse 7, if you want to turn to it, chapter 4, and verse 7. Eliphaz. He says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright? Or where were the upright destroyed? Hey, wait a minute. Uh, according to what I've seen, uh, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble, they harvest it. You must be guilty. You must be guilty, Job. I've never seen uh, the innocent perish. He must have done something horrible. And then Zophar, he comes along um, later on in chapter eleven, if you want to look there, in Job chapter eleven, beginning in verse thirteen, he says, If Job, if you would direct your heart right, Job eleven thirteen. If you would direct your heart right, and spread out your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Then indeed you could lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. So far, is pretty much saying the same thing. Job, just come clean before God. If you just confess where you've been an unrighteous man, where you've done some great sin, you're hiding from us all. If you just confess that, God will restore you. And you would be steadfast and you wouldn't have to fear. Then his third friend, Bildad Dad the shoe height, and I wanted to turn back a couple, a couple uh, chapters to chapter eight. Kids, this is Bildad Dad the shoe height. He's the shortest man in the Bible. Remember that? He was only shoe height. Pretty bad joke. I remember that when I was a kid. I always had to remember who Bildad Dad was. But Bildad Dad kind of was, had kind of the same perspective on things in his assessment. In chapter eight, he. Um, he says in verse 6, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Hey, Job, if you didn't have some great hidden sin in your life, God would restore you. He'd rouse himself up for you. Now look at verse 20 of Job chapter 8. Bildad says, lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Now notice here, it says in verse 21, He will fill your mouth with laughter if you're just a man of integrity. You know, too many well-intentioned Christians, and I've fallen into this myself, will tell people, you know, God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true. I believe that. That God indeed loves the world in the sense that He sent His Son to die for the sins of this world. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. We know that. But we also know the Scriptures teach us that God's abiding love and His eternal salvation is reserved for those who respond to that gospel in faith. And his plans for believers, scriptures tell us, always include some measure of trial and tribulation. Suffering is part of God's plan for every Christian. We know that from God's Word. And this is Bildad's perspective that, hey, if we're righteous, he'll fill our mouths with laughter, but it's a lie. Now, sometimes God chooses to do that. In fact, most of the time, God blesses us overflowing. But it's not a guarantee. In fact, the scripture is very clear that just the opposite will happen to those who follow Christ. John 15, 18, just listen, you don't need to turn to it. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it's hated you. In James 1, 2, it tells us, consider it all joy. We know this verse, don't we? My brethren, when you encounter various trials, in Philippians 1:29, we have a promise. that Paul communicates to the Philippians For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you. God has given to us a gift. The word granted there means gifted. God has gifted to us suffering for His sake. There is something about suffering in the Christian life that is necessary to refine us and purify us and draw us to the Lord and help us to see him more clearly in ways that we never could when things are going really, really well. I'm feeling that today. I'm coming before the Lord a whole lot more than I did when things were really, really great seven months ago, before the, before the, world colla- the financial world collapsed. And most of you know I work in the, in the banking world. I get to work with a lot of ministries. And in, in July, things were going really, really well. We're going to have our best year in our history really, and come back from vacation, and bam, thank God the kids are safe, family safe, but the world had changed dramatically, and that which we had counted on absolutely was no longer there. And God has worked through my life in ways that he never could have accomplished. Well, that I never would have responded to, <laughs> had he not brought me through this season and still bringing bringing me through this season. I thank God for it. Hard to do. And so Job hears his friends tell him the great lie. His suffering must mean he's committed some great sin. And if he was really a righteous man, he'd be laughing. And Job buys into this, at least to some extent. Look here in chapter 9 now. Job answers and, and he says, In truth, I know this is so. That's his first mistake. He says to Bildad, yeah, I guess you're right. I must have done something. I don't even know what it is, but I must have done something to make God mad. Now, we already know what happened. That God wasn't mad at Job at all. He's singing his praises, as it were. He's proclaiming his righteousness. But Job concludes he must have done something wrong. He should be laughing. And so he asks the question, how can a man be right before God? I'm going to share with you just three things this morning that we learn from this passage in chapter 9, first and foremost is, righteous lives do not shield us from suffering. Righteous lives don't protect us from suffering. When Job asked, how can a man be righteous before God, he asked an absolutely crucial question, but for the wrong reason. Now, this is the most important question any of us should ever ask and could ever ask. We all should ask the question, how can I be right before God? How could I ever be right before God? We can't answer that question. We have no hope for our eternal destiny, do we? How can I be right before God? And God, I thank God that he's revealed that answer to us and that our response to us will determine our eternal destiny. But Job isn't asking how he can be saved. He's thinking this. Hey, I've lived blamelessly before God. Shouldn't that be enough to protect me from all this misery? When he's asking the question, how can I be right before God, what he's really saying is, isn't my righteousness good enough? If this isn't good enough, what is? What's it going to take to please God? How could a man ever be right before God if the measure of God's pleasure in our life is that things go well? The standard of our relationship with God is that God makes things happy, that God allows us to laugh and there's never any mourning and there's never any sorrow and there's never any difficulty, then I must be okay with God. Job asked the question, how can I ever be right before God? I'm not happy. I'm in misery. Well, the Word of God teaches exactly the opposite. We know that. Sometimes... Pain and suffering is a direct result of our own foolishness and rebellion. We know that. There's lots of examples in Scripture. Lot's wife, David's sin, he said, my sin is ever before me. Peter's denial, he went out and he he wept because of his sin. Sometimes pain we bring on ourselves. I think maybe most of the time, don't you? I think so. But sometimes God simply disciplines us to shape our spiritual character for ways that we don't understand, but he chooses to mold us through suffering, through the crucible of misery. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he molds us. And sometimes the word of God tells us we suffer because of our faith. Jesus told his disciples, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Sometimes, We do suffer for our faith. I think, though, that probably doesn't happen enough. I think we suffer a lot because of our own foolishness and sin. Too much. And we don't suffer for our faith enough. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you suffered because of your faith? I think most of us uh, uh, saw that, was it the uh, Miss America contest? Is that what it was? And the gal that contested chose to be bold and explain why she believed in traditional marriage? And she was excoriated, pilloried, beat up on, publicly humiliated. I can't think of the last time I've been humiliated for my faith. Well, sometimes God's allowed suffering in our lives simply to strengthen us in our faith. In First Peter chapter 5, and verse 10, it says this, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you after you suffer for a little while. You've got to go through the suffering for God to complete his work of perfection, of confirming us in our faith, strengthening us in our faith, establishing establishing us in our faith. Paul says, I'm content with my weakness, for when I am weak, I am strong in the Lord, he told the Corinthians. And finally, we know the joy of God's comfort more fully when we're in the midst of our suffering. There is a contrast that suffering brings to us that somehow, in God's grace, brings us joy. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Paul tells the Corinthians, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So righteous living certainly doesn't shield us from suffering. But uh, Job did get some things right. Secondly, God is sovereign. First, God, a righteous living, doesn't shield us from suffering, but God is sovereign. Job got this right. He understood God's majesty, understood God's power and His sovereignty. He understood that we can't argue our innocence before God. Look at verse 3 now, Job chapter 9 and verse 3. He says, if one wished to dispute with him, who could answer him once in a thousand times? You know, Look, we're not going to argue with God and convince God that somehow we're right and he's made a wrong decision. Job understood that. It's not a good idea to argue with God. It's not a good idea to come before God and say, hey, I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm really good. I'm I'm good enough. (laughs) Well, actually, we're not. We know that all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. In Psalm 130, verse 3, we find the words that we sing sometimes in a a song here. It says, Lord, "If, if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you should mark mark our iniquities, if you should count our sins, who could stand before you? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is how many? None of us. None of us. Job gets it right. Who could dispute with him? Who could answer God once in a thousand times and be right? The answer is nobody. Job understood God's wisdom and his strength. Look at verses 4 to 7. Wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, and they know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars. It's God. God alone is mighty. God alone can accomplish that which he chooses. God alone can shake the mountains, and they don't even understand why. God is absolutely powerful. He understood God's power. He understood God's wisdom. He understood God's strength. And he sees it again in in God's creation. God understood that, uh, Job understood that God was the God of all creation. Look at um, verses um, 8 to 10. Who alone, that is God, stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea who makes the bear Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the South? Who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number? Job understands that God is the one who created the universe. Now, keep in mind, this is the oldest book of the Bible. Remember, Job didn't have any scripture to refer to. He had the revelation of God's creation and the Spirit working within him, and he understood as he looked up the stars. The constellations, the Pleiades and Orion and the, and the Bear and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and all those incredible constellations, he understood that God was the one who placed the stars in the heavens without number. And he understood what even space was about, this ancient guy that had no science, scientific training who wasn't supposed to understand this. In Job 26, verse 7, it says, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. I like that. Pretty good science, isn't it? Job understood that God created the entire universe. He even makes a reference to that which he has never seen and could never see. He talks about God made the bear Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. He had never seen the south, he never would. But he also understood that God made it, even that which he had never seen. You see, he understood. Ultimately, that God was inscrutable. That's a big-sounding word. You've probably heard it before. It just simply means that God's that the things of God are too deep for any one person to understand. It's just un, God. The depths of God's knowledge, the depths of God's majesty, the depths of God's power are too great for any of us to ever understand. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. So look at verse 10 now. God now, describing God, who does great things, unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? Should we say to God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing with my life? What what are you doing giving me this pain and making me go through these things? Job understood that it wasn't a good idea. Well, yeah, we can ask. But sometimes we can't know. So Job's theology, I think, was pretty good. Spot on to a point. He understood God's sovereign power and his grace. And he understood that God has revealed to him all that he really needed to know to live righteously before the Lord. We know that because he was. And God had declared it. And Job did trust God. But he still felt compelled to justify himself before God. And this is where Job... Missed the blessing. Turn to chapter 13. Job chapter 13. Job's great declaration of faith. One that we have all heard. What does he say? He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And you think, okay, just stop there. That's a good place to stop. Though he slay me. Yet, I will hope in him. I'll trust in him. But, well, no, he, he, like so many of us, puts his foot in his mouth. He keeps on going. Should have stopped. He says, nope, nevertheless, I'll argue my ways before him. (laughs) I'm going to make sure God hears my case. And then... He says at verse 16, this also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. So he says, listen carefully to my speech. Now, it's interesting, early in the chapter, he says to his friends, but I would speak, this, it's chapter 13, verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue with God. This is the same man who had just said, if a man wished to dispute with him, he couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. And now Job is saying, well, I'm going to argue with God. Well, he's a little conflicted, don't you think? He's struggling in the midst of his agony and his misery. I, I can't argue with God, but I'm going to give him my best shot. Well, we all want to explain things to God at one time or another. I mean, haven't you ever said before the Lord, you know, Lord, um, I really messed up this time. I, and I really, you know, I know I've sinned, but, but you know, I don't deserve this. Never ever been there? I mean, not this much. This is too much. Now, it doesn't say anywhere that Job sinned by pleading his case. You don't find that in Job. But I think by seeking to argue his case before God, the I don't deserve this thing, Job missed the real peace that only the Lord could have granted him if he simply chose to trust God. Instead of arguing his righteousness, I think, by arguing his righteousness, uh, he prolonged his pain and his suffering. Now, I, I don't mean to trivialize this, folks. Sometimes it really is almost more than we can bear, the pain in our lives. I understand that. Sometimes we really don't deserve what's happening to us. Sometimes we cry out to God in fear and frustration and pain. And Job's pain was about as bad as it gets. He gets to the point where he just goes, looks back and says, I wish, I wish things were the way they were before. Have you ever been there? Oh, if it was only last July, not August. I like July. I didn't like August. He says in chapter 29, you don't turn to it, just listen. It says, oh, that I were in as months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, and when my steps were bathed in butter. Isn't that graphic? He said, oh, I just wish it was like it was before. when well, I deserved it. I was a righteous man. I deserved it. And it says, And the rock poured out streams of oil, and when I went out to the gate of the city, and when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves, and the old man arose and stood. Doesn't get better than that, does it? God must like me. I'm getting what I deserved. Well, in the end... Job confessed his failure to the Lord. And uh, what was his failure? The scripture is really clear. The failure of Job was simply choosing to argue with God. Then the Lord said to Job, chapter 40. Turn to Job chapter 40. There's a lot to this book, by, by the way. I encourage you to read through it again sometime. But Job chapter 40 verse 1, starting with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Hey, you want to argue with me? You figure it out. Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job said, Look, I'm not going to argue with you, God. I want to argue. I want to plead my case. I've done it. But when it's all said and done, God, you are God. And you are sovereign. And what you choose for me is good enough for me. I put my hand over my mouth. Who am I to argue with God? And then his final confession, chapter 42. Notice this, it says, And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou can do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then he says in verse 4, Hear now and I will speak. I will ask thee and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee and by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Ultimately, Job came before the Lord, and he says, just seeing you, Lord, being before you is sufficient. I don't understand it, but I'm sorry that I ever question you, Lord. You see, the book of Job ends, we all know that Job, God in his grace, restored all things to Job, gave him a new family, seven new sons, three new daughters, doubled all of his possessions, more than he ever had. But what it doesn't tell us is that, Job, that God ever explained to Job why he suffered. There's no record in Job that Job ever was told why he was suffered, why he went through this incredible misery. Job lived another 140 years He thought he was going to die. He lived on 140 more years. And he never knew why he suffered. He never knew the conversation that went on, the debate between God and Satan. He never knew about it. He never knew God's purpose, that God intended to show Satan and show us that those who are faithful to the Lord will be faithful through every circumstance of life no matter what happens. Job proved that. He wasn't perfect. He had his problems. He wanted to argue with God. But when it was all said and done, he came before the Lord, he confessed to the Lord. The Lord restored him. And Job never knew. See, righteous lives don't shield us from suffering. God is sovereign. We can never explain that. But ultimately, and finally, the third thing I want to leave with you today is that suffering forces us to make a choice. It does. Simple as that. We either choose to believe God even though we will never fully understand why God takes us through the circumstances of our lives. For To some people, that just sounds dumb. Just trusting God blindly. We want explanations. We want evidence. And The message of Job is that sometimes we can't know. We simply have to choose to trust, and that is the choice. Do we trust God or don't we trust God? Do we accept that which God has for us, knowing that He works all things according to the kind intention of His will? Or do we question God and want to argue our case before Him? I'll leave you with this this morning. Uh, Our son Andrew, uh, many of you know, he's born and raised in this church. Met his wife in the nursery, Melissa. He's a a cop up in Northern California. He was accused of something uh, a number of months ago and was told summarily that he was going to be put on administrative leave. I asked Andrew if I could share this, and he said I could, so unless you think I'm talking out of school. But um, he went through a pretty painful time. Uh, He was put on administrative leave and not told for months what the accusation was. Never told. Said there's an investigation going on. And he went through more pain than I could ever begin to tell you, and Andrew would never tell you. And even now, after these many, many months, uh, he's restored to his job. He's working again. He doesn't really know all that went on. He has some clues. He has some things that he was told that he did, and he said, wait a minute, I never did those things. Well, it's all said and done. Uh, Andrew will never know what really went on through those months of suffering that he's been through. And I had breakfast with him a couple weeks ago. He and I went out together. I said, how you doing, son? He says, I'm doing well. And I already knew that. He teaching the Bible study with 17 guys that he'd never taught before. He, I said, how's your marriage? And he said, it's better than it's ever been. And Melissa and I are, are just growing stronger all the time. How's your relationship with God? I'm closer to the Lord than I've ever been in my life. Son, here's the question. Would you trade this? Months of agony? Would you trade it? just have it back to be the way it was before? Dad to son. And he says, uh, Dad, I wouldn't trade this for anything. It's been hard. It's been harder than I could ever tell you. But God has changed me and used me and I'm a different man than I was before. And God brought me through this for his purpose. And that's okay. I'm gonna be Okay. I thank God for that report. Sometimes we don't quite respond that way, do we? Sometimes we are tempted to rise up and curse God. Sometimes we question Him. Sometimes we just want to argue with God. But God works all things for His purposes, doesn't He? Do we really believe that? How can a man be right before God? <laughs> he can be right before God because we trust Him wholly. We trust his son, Lord Jesus, as our savior. We trust him because he cares for us. Amen? Lord, thank you for this time. We can come before you and worship your holy name. We pray that you would cause us to be a people who trust you more fully. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.